doctors, and they go, hmm, how did this happen? How did this happen? Page 704 in the Pew Bibles? Sounds good. So what we'll do this morning is we're going to take a closer look. We're going to continue um, our study through Jesus, and it looks like uh, you know it's going to work out timing-wise very nicely to where we will actually get to um, an Easter Sunday message, you know, Jesus resurrecting right when Easter really shows up. So it worked out really nice. I, I'd like to say I planned it that way, and I'm not smart, but I'm not. But uh, so just worked out that way. Um, maybe the Noah message, if I throw it in between, we'll throw it off, but that's okay. We'll adjust. That's okay. Um, okay, so Matthew 26, verse uh, 47. And we're going to talk about Jesus um, this morning where finally he's going to get uh, arrested. Um, he's going to be brought before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. And we're going to see how, like, what happened and how that developed. And then at the end, we'll just take home like, you know, one, hopefully one truth um, that I think that we could use that could apply to us, you know, 2014. Um, so the title of the message is uh, Arrested, Denied, and Mocked. Because um, that's really what's happening here, and um, that's what we're going to dig into this morning. So we pick up verse 47, and I put some questions in your bulletins just to help in case you um, get lost or maybe you miss a few things. Um, and so that will give you a chance to, to put that in there. And I'll, I'll try and address each of those questions as we go through them. So verse 47 is where we pick up, and we finished last week, just to catch up, right? Last week was the second most, I don't know, most, but second most significant garden of the Bible, right? You have the Garden of Eden, and then you have the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Eden, Adam is there, makes the biggest mistake of all time. Then you have the Garden of Gethsemane, where the second Adam, or Jesus Christ himself, is there, and he makes the best decision of all time. And um, we talked about last week how in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get to see a great look, a great picture, unlike really any other place in the Bible where Jesus really struggles with something that his father is asking him to do. You don't really see that anywhere else in the Bible where Jesus himself is struggling with what God asked him to do. And um, we talked about last week how, you know, that's like, encouraging, you know, to us, because sometimes it seems like Jesus is just painted um, as he's just immediately obedient to God the Father all the time, you know, no issues, no concerns, he just does it. And uh, that's not necessarily the case, and that's certainly not necessarily the case for us. It's constantly a battle. And we talked about for us how there's usually not just one garden of Gethsemane in our lives, there's usually many. Right? And we talked about how the point of Gethsemane and why God would put that in there and the opportunity that is presented in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? We talked about that last time. So Gethsemane, Jesus is praying so hard that in fact he is sweating and it's drops of blood. He asks his disciples, his 12 guys, guys, stick with me, pray with me, and they fall asleep. He goes back, guys, stick with me, pray with me, they fall asleep. Guys, stick with me, pray with me, they fall asleep. And then Jesus prays three times, Lord, I don't want to do it. 
God, let this cup pass. If there's any other way, let's do it. And he says, but not my will, but your will be done. And so, verse 46, it says, rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. So verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So you have Judah showing up on the scene. He comes equipped with this army who has swords and clubs because, you know, Jesus is a very violent man. And in verse 48 it says, Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. All right, they worked out a signal ahead of time uh, because it was nighttime, right? It was dark. And we even know from the word that um, nothing really stuck out about Jesus. He was like common. And um, there was nothing, he wasn't incredibly handsome, wasn't incredibly tall, you know, super short. I mean, there was nothing, he just kind of fit in there. And so they worked out a signal. And they're doing this thing at night because it's totally illegal. Totally illegal. That's why they're doing this, because they can't do this during the day, um, because there was like no trial, there was no process. It's just, we just want to get this guy. It's not like there was a warrant out for his arrest. He has broken particular rules, and so now we have to go get him. No, we're deciding right now, we just want to take him in, and we're going to do it any way we want to do it. And if it comes down to using the swords and the clubs, then that's what we're going to do. And this is all orders marched out by the religious authorities. So things are twisted. It is messed up. And the betrayer is Judas, right? The betrayer is Judas. So the sign that was arranged says, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. There are all signs to pick, you know. He picks a kiss. Something that intimately, you know, relates, you know, to people and... That's what he chooses. So in verse 49, going out once to Jesus, Jesus said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus' response, right? Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came here for, or do what you came here to do, or just get this done and get it over with. So as then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And we know from the other Gospels, uh, from John 18, and I think I put this slide in there, from John 18, we know from, uh, that it was Peter who did it, right? So then Simon Peter had a sword, drew it, and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear, right? And the servant's name was Malchus. In verse 52, Jesus says, Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. He says, Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Right, and so we talked about that, the legions, right? What's a legion, right? Not the skin legion, but like groups of people. So a legion 
would be around 6,000 men. And so he says, right, you do the math quick, right, 12 legions, right, 12, 6, 72,000. He said, hey, listen, I could call down thousands upon thousands. I am willingly giving over my life at this point in time. And why is he doing that? Verse 54. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? He's doing it and laying it down on his accord because he knows the word has to be fulfilled. Say it with me. The word has to be fulfilled. We're going to come back to that. The word has to be fulfilled. Verse 55. At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. And we talked about that before, right? So it comes down to crunch time. His core guys, they are gone. They have all left. And Jesus is allowing all of these events to take place because it's important that the word be fulfilled. Right? The word be fulfilled. So verse 57. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas. Everybody say Caiaphas. Took him to Caiaphas. So they arrested him and they take him to this guy Caiaphas. This guy is the high priest where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. So everybody's there. So they arrest him and they're bringing him to this guy's house, the high priest's house. Verse 58. But Peter, he's still in the mix. Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest's house. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. So Peter's still sticking around wanting to see how this thing is going to play out. So in verse 59, the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. This is what these guys are up to. No matter what the cost, let's put him to death. I don't care if we got to make stuff up, we got to put him to death. It just gives you a good picture, it gives us a good idea of how far gone these guys are. So focused on probably revenge, but resentment and bitterness and anger has taken such root that they don't even care what's really right or wrong. They just want to get done what they want to get done. Problem is verse 60. But they did not find any. They couldn't find any evidence against him. Right? It was a struggle. Jesus hasn't really done anything except good things. So, but they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. So they're trying to produce these false witnesses to come forward because even they know that, hey, listen, we can't pin something on this guy and give him a death sentence if we can't, at the very least, get a collaboration among some witnesses. And they had to do that according to the Old Testament. I think I put um, in the slides there, maybe I didn't. Deuteronomy 17 is that whenever you're going to try and sentence somebody, 
especially uh, to death. I don't have it, but it's in Deuteronomy 17.6. Whenever you try to try somebody to sentence them, you have to have at least two to three witnesses that agree on what happened. And although they're producing false witnesses who are lying and giving accounts, they can't get two or three guys to agree. But then it says, finally, two came forward and declared. This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. This is apparently a heavy-duty crime and the best they could come up with. So what's the evidence? Like, what are we going to charge this guy with? Well, he said he could knock down the temple. That's the best they got. That's it. That, that was a big deal. Because the temple is like their place of worship. That's where really Jewish life, the, the center of all of it was. It all was around a building. And uh, Jesus said, yeah, hey, listen. you know, I can knock this temple down and rebuild it again in three days. Or did he really say that? It wasn't technically exactly what he said. Like John 2.9 is technically exactly what he said. 2.19. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And when you read the passage, like he's just talking about himself. Because when you go through that conversation, um, that was after he cleared out the temple and did all this stuff. And they said, well, you know, what gives you the right? And he said, well, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. And after that, it says, and he was referring to his body, which he was going to die and then raise again in three days. But again, this is the best they have. So this apparently is death sentence worthy. You get to go to the cross if you say you're going to take down the temple. It's craziness. So verse 62. Then we get to a very important topic. It says, Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? Because Jesus remained silent. He remained silent during this. It says, What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Right? But verse 63, he remained silent. Why would you remain silent if you're getting bogus testimonies getting brought before you? If you know that people are making it up and you know it's false. I wouldn't be silent. I would say, hey, no. That guy's a plant. He's lying. He was never there. You know, that never happened. Blah, blah, blah. But, so that the word may be fulfilled, right, like we said, it says in Isaiah that he has to be silent. I think it's Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before it shares his silence, so he did not open his mouth. Right? He is more concerned, not about if he gets a legitimate trial, he's more concerned that the scriptures would be fulfilled and that the word would be held true. It's an amazing man. So then, the high priest, here's the big question, right? The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Right now, I charge you under oath, tell us, are you the Messiah? 
all cards on the table. I think even they had a hint that, man, this temple charge, like, this might not stick. You know, that, that's just not that heavy. Are you the Messiah pulling no punches? And maybe many people say, well, Jesus never said, you know, that you know, he was the Messiah and part of God. Well, he's getting asked that flat out right here. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? Verse 64. Yes, it is as you say. And then he says something very interesting. Jesus says, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. So this is radical. So like, forget the temple thing. I am the Messiah. Flips everybody out. I mean, flips them out. This is crazy. Now this guy, he has way crossed the line. This is easy now. We can charge him. And then, to like, drive it home a little bit more, he says this phrase after, but I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's very significant that he says that because he specifically picks two passages that are messianic in nature and that point to the promised Messiah, and he says that's true of himself. And they know this, they're the religious leaders. So he picks Psalm 110, verse 1, which we have on the slide so you can see it. Psalm 110, verse 1. Hopefully it comes up. Josh, maybe, Psalm 110, verse 1. Oh, there it is. Okay. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So that's what he says. You will see uh, the Son of Man um, sitting at the right hand, sitting at the right hand. That's what the Messiah will do. And then he drives it home a little bit more with Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Look at Daniel 7. In my vision, at night I looked, and there before me was like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days led to his presence. So he goes, I am the Messiah. And he said, basically, Psalm 110, Daniel 7, that's me. Don't miss it. I'm saying it right now. They flip out. And by flipping out for like the Sanhedrin, they rip their clothes. That's a flip out. And that also usually meant that they were going to impose some kind of serious punishment. Usually a death, usually a death penalty. When they rip the clothes, that's like, oof. You can't get any worse than that. So... Jesus has just punched right, his own death ticket, but he knew he was going to. So verse 65, Then the high priest tore his clothes, and he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Like, he just did himself in. Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. And then catch the scene, right? Verse 67, Then they spit in his face, and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? So then they mock him, they beat him, they're spitting, they're hitting him. You know, they have him covered probably, they're hitting him. And who hit you? Who hit you? And like making fun of, you know, prophesy. You know, is this, you know, so and so that hit you? Is this so and so? And it's just, it's an ugly scene. And again, this scene takes place because it's too fulfill the word. 
fulfill the word. Isaiah 56. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. So again, Jesus is getting completely a bogus trial. He's getting treated horribly. And he's not going to stick up for the truth and for what really happened. He'd rather have the Bible be true than himself be right. Did you catch that? He'd rather have the word be true than have a 110% accurate trial. He knows what the end game is already going to be. He already knows. So he'd rather have the word come true in his life than have himself be right. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. So now we look through, we see how he's been betrayed, how he gets arrested, and then how he gets mocked. So, in your bulletin there, I have all those letters like in a row. You know, S-W-D-T-H-T-T-D-W-M. So what does that have to do with me? That's what that's for, right? So what does that have to do with me? I mean, we can certainly see Jesus and his sacrifice, and we can see how he was taken advantage of, how the trial was totally bogus, they tried to produce false witnesses, it was done at night, it was done in secrecy, it was just all wrong. But what does that have to do with us? Like, we're going to go back to our families today, end of March, March 30th here, 2014. You know, we have um, work that's starting up again tomorrow, maybe work later today. You know, we have chores to do, we got family to take care of, we have relationships we're dealing with. So, what could we possibly take away, you know, from Jesus at this moment where he's betrayed and mocked? Well, here's what I felt like God was ministering to my heart. Maybe you can take away a bunch of things. But here's something that was just ministering to my heart as I was reading and just praying and going through this. One truth that I think we can hold on to. On the next slide here. Sometimes extremely unfair, illegal, and just flat out wrong circumstances become a part of his plan. Then just like sink in for a minute. Sometimes, extremely unfair, just getting taken advantage of, talking wrongly about, maybe flat out illegal, and just wrong circumstances become a part of God's plan. I don't think like his original plan like includes all of that funk to happen. But the problem is that there is sin. The problem is that there are, there is an enemy. And the enemy does have workers. And that this thing is a battle. Because I think sometimes it might be easy for the Western mind to think that it's definitely of God and from God when it works out and it works out easily. And it went, and when it came together, just effortlessly. That's a definite sign that God was in it. 
I don't know if it's a definite sign. It could be a sign. Certainly God has been known to take situations and make them work out just amazingly and easily. But other times, there are other situations, like the one we just read, where it's definitely part of His plan for Jesus to go through that stuff. And certainly that was not easy and just fell into place. So I think it's really important for us as Christians to just come with a real basic understanding of man, you know what? I should expect in my life, in Jared's life, and in your life, we should expect extremely unfair, possibly illegal, and wrong circumstances to somehow weave their way into us following out what God has for us. It's just going to happen. Hopefully we can just stay faithful in the end. Hopefully it won't rock our world and then we just say, is God real? Is He there? Is the Bible real? Because many times that's what will happen. Or it'll just paralyze us from doing anything. I don't even know what I'm going to do with this God thing right now, with Christianity right now. I don't know. I'm just not going to do anything. I'm just not like going to go to church or go to that prayer meeting or like talk to so-and-so or I don't want to pick up the phone right now. So I think it's important that we have that understanding like, man, if God is in it, it could go smoothly. But if God is in it, man, it could be a wild, difficult ride too. Absolutely. Part of the blessing could be a difficult, stretching, pruning, challenging road. That could be a blessing. It could also be a blessing when he like increases finances and makes life more comfortable. That can also be a blessing. And many times I think that if like we have conversations or we share with people like how is God blessing us and what is he doing? For whatever reason, it seems much more easy to say, oh, God, is, God just blessed me like with this job. You know, it just happened. And, you know, maybe uh, God just uh, blessed this particular, I didn't have any money here, like, and then it just happened. It's very rarely when people are like, I am just like flat out struggling right now, but I'm blessed. It's very rare to hear that. But many times that process is definitely part of the blessing. It's not necessarily an indication that we're doing something wrong. It could be totally an indication that we're doing something right. But a prosperity gospel, that doesn't fit in there. Doesn't fit in there. So, if that's the case, sometimes extremely unfair, illegal, and wrong circumstances become a part of his plan. Then on the next slide here, here's the question. At least the question I came up with. Question is, will we then conclude that God's word is not true? Or will we submit to his word even though it got us into this mess? Right? That's where the rubber hits the road. Because Jesus, right, he was more concerned that those prophecies in Isaiah, Daniel, and there's a multiple and plethora of other ones, he was more concerned that those things happen, they become fulfilled, than if he gets a legitimate legitimate trial and he is treated correctly. 
I don't know how often I can say that about my life. I think many times I am very concerned with how rightly I am being treated. And I many times feel the need to defend myself when things are maybe said or not accurately portrayed about myself. Maybe you're like that too. If somebody puts you in a light that you don't like, is it a knee-jerk reaction of immediate defensive mode? You know, or is there something bigger at play? I'm just amazed and uh, encouraged and challenged by the fact that Jesus really just had tunnel vision on God's word and what he said and that's bottom line most important that's what I'm going after man do we need a church and a body of people like that and whatever happens happens the difficulty I think that comes in there and there's probably lots of difficulties but certainly one main difficulty is that if the word is not really a part or is like scattered in there a little bit and it's not central, then it's really difficult to know what to hold on to and what to make sure maintains truth in our lives. That's why the study of the word and getting alone with God is so important. Because the belief is that God through His Holy Spirit speaks to us and shows us and reveals to us where He's going and what He's doing. And then He illuminates and brings clarity and understanding to what's in here. But if that stuff doesn't really take a prominent place in my life and hopefully a priority place in my life, it's very difficult to make sure that that is at the center. Like then other stuff can just get in and cloud it. So that's why I like the Calvary Chapel model. And there's other churches that do it too, where man, they, they just like stick to the word. You know what I mean? Just stick to the word, just go through it. Hey, present the whole counsel of God, you know, to the community and to those around. And uh, you can't stray too far if you just stick to that. And just make sure, right, that prayer also plays that prominent role too so that we can understand what God is doing with that. So what does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with us? I would say, man, you know what? Let's just be ready and just be expecting that Satan's going to come and bring everything, including the kitchen sink, the more we get sold out. It's just coming. It is coming. And so then the question is, right, are we going to stick to it and get ourselves even further to, into His promises and what He says? Or does it cause us to fall off by the wayside and paralyze us for a little while? That's what it's going to come down to. And I think that's the truth, you know, that we can really take away from it. Um, so we're going to close um, with one song here, Savior King. And um, hopefully during that song, um, we can just uh, you know, reflect 
and uh, think about the type of uh, just focus, you know, that Jesus had, that the Word was just predominantly first in his life and everything else filtered through that. Um, So hopefully we can think about that um, during this song, and then we're going to come and pray together. Because you died and rose again 